God, we love you so much. And Lord, I'm so thankful to be able to be here today and to share your word and to be able to speak on your behalf. And Lord, I pray today more than anything that the words that come out of my mouth would not be mine, but they'd be yours. Lord, today I pray that in this room for the next few moments, Lord, that we would set aside all of the agendas of this world. Lord, we would set aside all of the distractions that pull us in so many different directions. And Lord, for these next few moments, we would just silence our hearts and our souls so that we can hear from you. And Lord, uh, I pray and, and, and I speak against the enemy trying to get into this place today. Lord, we are not going to let the enemy have any kind of victory. And so, Lord, just move and let us feel your spirit and let us hear what it is that you have for us. And, Lord, we place this service completely in your hands. I pray this in your most precious name, and everybody says, Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we are in the Gospel of Mark, and today we are starting chapter 3. Thirteen weeks later, we're in the third chapter of 16 chapters, so that tells you how long we're going to be preaching in the Gospel of Mark. And it's exciting, isn't it? I'm loving. I, I, I got to tell you, you know, I, I've, I've been very hesitant about doing this because, you know, because I'm ADD and it's like committing to something like this is like, but I am just, I, each week God is just revealing. I'm, I'm learning as much as I'm sharing. And uh, uh, to be honest with you, I probably, every, every message I've preached up to this point so far, I probably could have preached two or three messages on that subject, and you're all going, oh, no, three or four messages. That's another four or five years. <laughs> there are 66 books in the Bible. Okay, yeah. Uh, right now, though, the Gospel of Mark is the Gospel for us. And uh, I don't know if you guys all know this, but it just dawned on me the other day. You know my first name is actually Mark. Did you guys know I go by my middle name? How many of you didn't know that? Yeah, news for everybody. Yes, my mother, I haven't told you this story. I'm going to tell it to you because it's what I do. So, uh, uh, so when I was born, when I came into this world, uh, my parents made the decision that they were going to name me Mark Stephen. Uh, and my middle name is spelled with a P-H. Uh, which is very thankful because uh, my mother at first was going to name me after my grandfather, and thank you, Jesus, for giving me my own father, because uh, my grandfather's name is Millard Cephas. <laughs> you can have a Millard Cephas as your pastor right now. I thank my dad every time I see him. Uh, but anyway, make a long story short, if I can do that, uh, there was another little boy in our church when I was born whose name was Mark. And he was spitfire. Well, my mom was concerned, I don't know why, but she was concerned that they would get me mixed up with him. 
And so she started calling me Stephen. And I've gone by my middle name ever since. And so you thought it was going to be more exciting than that. I, I, when I started telling the story, I thought it was going to be more exciting than that too, but it's really not. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so my name is Mark, okay? Uh, so if my mother is ever around and she says, Mark Stephen, you know I'm in trouble. <laughs> governing board don't get any ideas wherever you're at. Yeah, my governing board, every time I get in trouble, they're going to start calling me Mark Stephen. Mark Stephen? Where's Linda at? Is Linda, is, are you in here? Yeah, I can hear her voice right now. So, All right. Okay, well, let's go ahead. We're going to dive into chapter 3 today. This is a very relaxed day. I don't know what it is, but it just seems very, it's just kind of, uh, it's kind of just melatonin type. Did you all take like melatonin before you came today? I don't know, but it just feels like that, you know? Um, but today we're in chapter 3, all right? And so our text today once again finds Jesus in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And so last week we talked about the Sabbath. Well, today uh, we find Jesus here in chapter 3. Yet again, he's in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And while there, while he's in the synagogue on the Sabbath, he performs a amazing miracle. Now, unfortunately, this marvelous act of grace is overshadowed yet again by the suspicion and the animosity of the Pharisees. And so our studies in chapter 2, we just came out of chapter 2, reveal, uh, or revealed the struggles that Jesus faced being confronted constantly, it seemed like, by the Pharisees on several occasions. And so here we are in chapter 3, thinking that we're going to move past that. And yet again, as we move into chapter 3, those struggles continue as we move forward. And while these confrontations began early in Jesus' ministry, he would face them. We're going to learn this as we go through the gospel. He would face these controversies all the way to the cross, all right? So the Son of God had come to earth to be the Redeemer and Savior of all humanity, and yet he is continually forced to deal with the accusations and hindrances of those who oppose him. It's never easy, is it, to face opposition? Is it? I mean, anybody here, you know, you get excited when you go up against opposition. Anybody here is like, I just can't wait to wake up today and have somebody disagree with me. Anybody here that way? Because I, I, if, if there's any, I want to have a chat with you, all right? There are people on this planet that are like, they wake up every day and they go, I can't wait to find somebody to get in an argument with. I'm not one of those people. I don't like to argue. I don't like to be in opposition with people. As a matter of fact, I'm what they call a people pleaser, all right? As a matter of fact, I'll go the extra mile just to make sure you are not upset with me, all right? Because it hurts my little heart. Not really. I just don't like the confrontation. But anyway, uh, it's never easy to face opposition, especially when you're doing what is right. That's the worst 
time to face opposition. When you are doing what you know is right and people are pushing back against you. Well, what I want you to feel comfort in today as we begin this message is the reality of knowing that Jesus knows exactly how you feel. Jesus knows exactly what that's like because he endured the same difficulties. And so hopefully today in our study, what I'm hoping that will happen here is that this study will offer some insight to the struggles that we face and also give us a renewed confidence in our Lord and Savior, understanding that not only does he understand what we are going through because he has gone through it himself, because he has endured it also, but also understanding and knowing that as we face controversies, as we face struggles, he's there with us. Amen? All right. So let's start exegeting this passage. And by the way, I love using that word, exegeting. I don't know. Does anybody know what exegete means? Exegesis? It's a big theological word that we learn in seminary, all right? And every once in a while, I got to use it so that I remind myself that I actually learned something in seminary, all right? It's amazing that seminary is very close to cemetery. <laughs> another story for another day, all right? Exegesis is the word, okay? And I, I, just on a side note, because we are actually going through the gospel of Mark in a exegetical fashion, I want to let you know what that actually means. So exegesis is the exposition or explanation of a text based on careful, objective analysis, okay? Uh, the word exegesis literally means to lead out of. And so, in other words, what we're doing in this study of the Gospel of Mark is we are allowing the Scripture to speak to us, and we are leading out of the Scripture, okay? Uh, it means that the interpreter is led to his conclusions by the text itself. And so, as I am preparing these messages, I am prayerfully and hopefully exegeting these. In other words, I am allowing the Scripture to speak to us, and out of the Scripture, we are learning what God is speaking to us. Now, the reason I say that is because there is another form or another type of, of interpretation of Scripture, and that is called eisegesis, okay? And it's the opposite approach of Scripture, all right? which is what, what eisegesis is, is it is the interpretation of a passage based on um, a subjective or a non-analytical reading. In other words, what it literally means is lead to, so, which means what you do is you read a passage of Scripture and you inject yourself or your understanding into the Scripture, your own ideas. And so what you do is when you're reading the Scripture from an eisegesis perspective, you can make Scripture say anything you want, all right? Because it's based on you and not the Scripture. And hopefully, I don't ever do that. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to say that I haven't been guilty at times, but I struggle against that. I don't want to 
decide what I want to tell you and then go find some scripture and try to make it fit into what I want to tell you, okay? You see, what we talked about last week, you can take scripture from an eisegesis manner and you can make fingerless gloves of the devil, all right? Even though scripture never talks about wearing fingerless gloves, all right? At least I don't think it does, all right? Obviously, only exegesis does justice to the text. Eisegesis is a mishandling of the text and often leads to misinterpretation. Exegesis is concerned with discovering the true meaning of the text and then respecting it, respecting its grammar, respecting its syntax, respecting its setting, respecting the working of the Holy Spirit through it. Eisegesis is concerned only with making a point, even at the expense of of the meaning of words. And that is the most deep and theological conversation I'm going to have with you all day long. All right? We're going to go back. I'm not that I'm done we're done with the uh, with the seminary lecture, okay? All right. So let's exa and not isa, okay? All right, so let's just dive into this today. So uh, I want to begin by looking at verse 1 and 2, starting with verse 1, and I want to talk about the problem that Jesus is facing here. So as Jesus, in this passage of Scripture, is entering the synagogue, he immediately encounters a dilemma, all right? Actually, this dilemma is twofold, okay? He encounters the first dilemma, and that is a physical disability, all right? So in chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a shriveled hand, all right? Now, according to the Greek text here, this man's hand uh, more than likely had been injured or it had become paralyzed, and what was basically happening here is he was not able to use his hand, all right? No doubt this was of great concern to the man. If you can imagine in your own life, imagine no longer being able to use your hand, okay? The difficulties that that would bring, okay? It hindered his ability to work and to provide for himself. It hindered his work and ability to provide for his family. And so he was definitely in need of a touch by the Lord. So the first dilemma is this physical disability, but there's also a second dilemma that Jesus faces as he enters into the synagogue. And this dilemma is intense spiritual hypocrisy. All right? It says, in order to accuse him, verse 2, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. All right? So he faces this gentleman, he comes in contact with this man who has a withered hand, who needs healing, but he also comes in contact face-to-face -face with those who are watching him closely to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. The Pharisees were already aware of the presence of the man with the withered hand. Make no mistake about that. They knew he was there. As soon as Jesus entered the synagogue, they fixed their eyes on him, watching every move he made, wanting to see if he, Jesus, would perhaps heal this man on the Sabbath. 
And so the watchful eyes, it was not out of concern. They weren't watching him out of concern or sympathy for the man. We know that, right? Say yes. Yeah. They were looking for another opportunity to accuse Jesus of breaking the law by disregarding the Sabbath. Okay? The supposed keepers of the spiritual gate were not concerned with the needs of humanity, but yet again seeking to discredit the Son of God. Their hearts, they weren't focused on worship that day, but intense scrutiny to accuse Jesus. So that's where we, we begin this passage at. And I want you to know something. As I was reading through this and I was preparing for today, as we're looking at what's happening in these first two verses, I think we also need to be very much aware and we need to guard our hearts as we seek to worship and serve the Lord. Because if we're not careful, we can allow our own selves to fall into the hypocrisy of personal agendas that will hinder or pursue or, 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 or uh, stop our pursuit of Christ and labor for him. We need to be aware of the reality that because of our humanness, we all like to get what we want, right? We all like to get things to go the way we want them to go. We all have an agenda in some way or another, but we have to be careful not to allow our personal agenda to overshadow what God wants to do. Can you say amen to that? We gotta guard ourselves against that, all right? Now, being aware of the Pharisees and the hardness of their hearts Jesus comes into the temple and he remains committed to fulfilling the Father's plan. He refuses to allow the opposition of some to hinder his ministry. I want you to notice something here. I want you to notice in these verses, in verse 3, I want you to first notice his compassion. He told the man with the shriveled hand, Stand before us. Keeping in mind the Pharisees are watching Jesus' every move, they're waiting with expectation to see what he will do with this man. No doubt they believed Jesus would not ignore the man. They knew what he was going to do, and they knew the man's great need, and they were right, okay? They, what they thought Jesus was going to do, he did. And upon seeing the man... Jesus commands him to step forth in front of the crowd. And without saying anything else, the man immediately knew Jesus had recognized his need and it appeared he was going to provide something for him. And so in some way not, uh, in, in, in some, uh, and, and some may not have thought much of the man's human need. Uh, there may have been some in the room that really weren't concerned with the, with the struggles that the man had, but for this man who had the shriveled hand, it was very important to him that Jesus noticed him. It was very important that Jesus recognized him. And I don't know about you, but for me, I am glad Jesus is aware of every need that we have. No matter how big 
or small the need may be. You see, he is interested in us unconditionally. He's interested in the seemingly insignificant burdens and he has the ability to provide for us regardless of the need. And so the first thing that I want you to pull out of this or another thing that I want you to pull out of this this morning is the reality that I don't, I, I, I don't know what your struggle is. I don't know what your need is. I don't know what you're wrestling with right now. I don't know what burdens you're carrying right now. But what I do want to know, I want you to know more than anything is that whatever it is that you're carrying, Jesus is concerned about it. And I don't care how seemingly small or how massive it may be. If Jesus cares about how many hairs are on your head, I said that last week. I'm not going to make any jokes this week. If he cares about the number of hairs on your head, he cares about everything that you are facing. And I don't know about you, but that gives me peace and comfort beyond anything that I could even begin to imagine. Now, in verse 4, it says, Then he said to them, All right, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And after looking around at them with anger, says Jesus got ticked, he got angry here, he was grieved at the hardness of their heart. You see, before saying anything else to this man with the withered hand or addressing his need, Jesus first deals with the Pharisees. Not only, not only did he immediately recognize the need of the man, but Jesus was also aware of the hard hearts of the Pharisees, and he confronts their hypocrisy and their lack of concern with this man and his need. And once again, he is forced to address the same allegations that he previously faced regarding his disciples picking grain in, on the Sabbath. You remember we talked about that last week? Yeah? And so G Jesus knew it was the Sabbath, and he also knew that God had not forbidden him of doing good or healing on the Sabbath, as was usually the case, the Pharisees refused to respond. Such an attitude and accusations create a righteous anger in the heart of Jesus, and it causes him to grieve. Our Lord here was troubled at the ridiculous attitude and self-righteousness of the Pharisees. Now, I think about this from our perspective yet again. As I study this passage and I read this and I see what the scripture is saying, I think we must also realize that our Lord, our Savior, knows our heart and he knows our motives. Folks, nothing is hidden from him. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be guilty ever of intentionally grieving the heart of Jesus due to a hard heart or a self-righteous attitude. 
Do you trek with me on that one? I don't ever want to be guilty of causing Jesus to grieve because of my arrogance or my self-righteousness or my thinking that I am so much better than someone else or that I know more than someone else or that I've got it figured out and nobody else does. That's one of the scariest things to me because I'll tell you right now, I have a clear understanding and realization that if it wasn't for the grace and love of Jesus Christ, I don't know where I'd be today. But wherever I would be, it would not be good. Because his presence in my life It's what makes me complete. It's what gives me strength. It's what gives me peace. It's what gives me the ability each and every day to crawl out of bed and say, I have another day. Lord, what would you have for me to do? Let's continue. Second part of verse 5. So, First part of five, he says, after looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts because they were more concerned about keeping the Sabbath than they were the, the, the healing of this gentleman. And so he tells the man, he says, stretch out your hand. And so he stretches it out, and his hand is restored. Knowing that the Pharisees opposed his every move, Jesus refuses to be dissuaded. He's determined to heal the man, and even if the Pharisees oppose him, he's going to do such an act. Even if they're against him, it doesn't matter if it's the Sabbath or not. He knows what is right, and he's going to do it. Jesus refuses to allow people to intimidate or hinder his obedience to the Father. Let that sink in for a second. He refuses to allow people to intimidate or hinder his obedience to the Father. You see, he refused to make the man suffer another day simply to please the attitude of of the self-righteousness of these men. The man stood in need of healing, and what does Jesus do? Say it, what's he do? He heals him, that's right. He healed him. And I am glad, let me just tell you something, I'm going to speak about me again. I am glad our Lord did not listen to the voices of others when I needed to be healed. Now, I didn't have a withered hand, but I did have a heart that was sinful and it was lost. And some who were self-righteous may not have looked my way or even cared. But let me tell you who did care. Jesus Christ. 
And he cares for you. I don't care what other people think. I don't care how other people feel about you. Jesus loves you as if you were the only person in existence. That's how much he cares for you. And so this man needing of a healing It didn't matter if it was going to break the Sabbath. It didn't matter if the Pharisees were going to be upset about it. It didn't matter uh, uh, what kind of laws might get broken. Jesus was concerned about one thing, and that is the man in front of him needed to be healed, and he could heal him. And so he did it. Preach like my grandfather. And so that leads us to verse 6 today. There's always got to be a verse 6. Immediately, the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. You see, here we discover the rebellious attitude of the Pharisees. When confronted with truth, they chose to reject truth and embrace the flesh. Now, I want you to notice some stuff real quick in this last verse, okay? First of all, I want you to understand and notice their haste, okay? The Pharisees, they wasted no time in in forming a plan to oppose Jesus. They left the synagogue that day with a mission. They were determined to do everything they could to prevent Jesus' ministry from expanding any further. They stood against everything Jesus did or said. Things haven't changed too much in the church today and in the world today. Our culture still struggles with this, folks. I'm going to tell you right now, if you're not aware of this, become aware of it today. The church, listen, The body of believers. When I say the church, I'm not talking about an institution. I'm not talking about a building. I'm not talking about a denomination or a non-denomination or whatever we want to call it. When I talk about the church, I'm talking about those who proclaim to be disciples of Jesus Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if he is living in your life, if you have surrendered to him, you are the church. And things have not changed in our culture today. The church is opposed by Satan and those who are deceived by him. The enemy is looking for every opportunity, every second of every day to take the church down. If the Lord is at work in the life of an individual or a local body of believers, let me speak this out today so we are aware of it. It won't be long until the enemy mounts an attack to take them down. Folks, every day that we strive to do what Jesus has called us to do, the enemy is trying to take us out. And we cannot, 
we cannot give in to the tax of the enemy. He wants you defeated. He wants you depressed. He wants you to feel like a failure. He wants you to be angry. He wants you to be sad. He wants to convince you that the people in your life do not love you. He wants you to be convinced that what is happening at this church is not good. Whatever we do, there's something that should be done different. He wants you to be convinced that that person sitting next to you is your enemy. That's what the enemy wants you to believe. And he's going to do everything that he can every step of the way to stop you when he understands God is in your life. You see, the Pharisees in this passage immediately took counsel with the Herodians. And this quite truthfully reveals the utter hypocrisy that they possessed. That's a fun word to say, hypocrisy. Say it, say hypocrisy. You gotta say it with some disdain. Say hypocrisy. You gotta spit a little bit. Make the person in front of your hair wet. Hypocrisy. I just sprayed the whole front row. <laughs> you see, the reason I say this is because Pharisees were regarded as those who knew the word and lived in an effort to please God. That's what the Pharisees were. The Pharisees were experts in Scripture, and they were supposed to be known as those striving to please God. All right? Now, it says in this passage of Scripture, it says, immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. Now, the Herodians, just so that you know, were not a spiritual group. Matter of fact, the Herodians, they were a bunch of politics. They were a political group, okay? What the Herodians were is they were the reason they were called Herodians is because they were loyal to King Herod and they were sympathetic to the Roman government and to the Roman rule. Uh, and some of the some of the Herodians were also Sadducees, okay, and that's another story. But just a few, here's what makes it so interesting. Just a few days earlier, just a few days before this situation right here. The Pharisees were condemning Jesus for sharing a meal with publicans who were sympathetic to the Roman cause, all right? So Jesus, he's hanging out with sinners, and the Pharisees, he's hanging out with people who, who are hanging out with the Romans, who are sympathetic to the Roman cause, the oppressors, okay? And the Pharisees, they're giving Jesus a hard time because he's sitting down having a meal with these guys, okay? And they're accusing Jesus of conspiring with the Herodians. And now, here we find, a few days later, what are the Pharisees doing? Conspiring with the Herodians. They agreed to work with and support a group who had fundamental doctrinal differences in an effort to destroy Jesus. Man, we see that happening all around us in our culture today, don't we? 
Groups and factions with fundamental differences couldn't agree with each other on on the second Tuesday of the last week of the month. I don't know what that means, but it just I just said that. Who can agree on nothing? Yet they'll come together in an effort to hinder the church and silence the promotion of the gospel. You see, sin has a way of creating strange alliances if we allow it to run free. So immediately, verse 6 again says, the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. And these men were not content with just minimizing the ministry of Jesus or hindering his message. They were committed to destroying Jesus. What they wanted to do was destroy Jesus. They didn't just want Jesus barred from the synagogue. They wanted him dead. This hatred, it would remain until the Sanhedrin had their scandalous mock trial that we talked about a couple weeks ago, consenting to the death of Jesus and delivering him to Pilate to be crucified. The level of hatred here that we're seeing is beyond understanding, and to be quite honestly, it's sad. Clearly, these men did not recognize Jesus as the Christ. They had no idea who they were dealing with. Mere mortals were conspiring in an effort to kill the sovereign king of the ages. And yet again, their hatred further proves their hypocrisy. Men who were supposed to teach and promote the ways of God conspired to kill an innocent man. They proved that they would stop at nothing to advance the and protect Their cause. They were not servants of God. These were sinful men hidden in self-proclaimed righteousness. And what scares me more than anything is that the hatred that we are seeing in this passage of Scripture still continues today. The world doesn't mind. Let me just tell you guys something. I'm going to get all political for a second. I'm going to get all whatever, okay? The world doesn't mind religion. They will tolerate religion in almost any form. They don't mind references to God or to a higher power. They will tolerate such doctrine even if they refuse to believe. However, I'm going to tell you, no matter what you hear people saying, I'm going to tell you where the world draws a line is it draws a line with Jesus Christ. They are enraged when Christ is mentioned or proclaimed. Even America, religion is fine as long as no one mentions Jesus Christ is Lord. The moment you start talking about Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Jesus being the King, Jesus being where you give your allegiance, that is when the world will stand in opposition. I am convinced that this hatred that we see in the Scripture, that we see in our culture as a whole, will continue to increase as we get closer and closer to Jesus returning. Listen, he's coming back. I don't know if you guys realize that. 
And I don't know the day, I don't know the hour, but I know he is returning. And when he returns, it says he is going to make everything right. And the enemy is convinced at stopping that in every way possible. And I don't care. Wow, I'm getting excited. I don't care. How busy your life is. I don't care how important the things of your life are. I don't care how many different things you have in your life that pull you in so many different directions and take you in so many different ways. If Jesus Christ is not first in your life, there's going to be a day when you're going to stand before him and he is going to hold you accountable. And we don't have time anymore. He's coming back. And we need to be prepared. Man, I got all excited there. But the thing that's so cool is that you are the most important thing, person, being in his life. Every single one of you. Us. No matter what, we must continue to proclaim the gospel from a heart of love, even when opposed and hindered. You see, I've read this passage over and over and over and over again, and i got to be honest, up until this past week, every time I read this passage of Scripture, I always, my focus always zoomed in on the healing of the withered hand. Every time I used this passage of Scripture, I was like, oh, this is a great passage about Jesus healing this guy's hand. And it is a great passage about the healing of a withered hand. And while that Miracle is tremendous. It is horribly overshadowed by the hatred of the Pharisees. You see, Jesus just didn't want us to see the man get healed. He wanted us to understand what can happen when we allow hatred to penetrate our hearts and our lives. You see, Jesus was well aware of their hatred, and yet he remained steadfast in performing the work he came to accomplish. What I'm going to tell you is this morning, if the world hates us, if the world throws us under the bus, if the world attacks us from every angle, our task, our responsibility is to no matter what, to love. These guys were attacking Jesus at every angle, and still he showed love. We must develop that same commitment that we see in Jesus Christ here. We cannot allow the hindrances of life to prevent our faithfulness to the work we have received. And the work that you and I have been given is to live in such a way as though Christ were living our lives for us.
Our calling is to love. Our calling is to help the least of these. Our calling is to be there with compassion no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation. My wife, I gotta tell this last story and I'm gonna ask the band to come up as we do this. My wife, whenever we go to any major cities, I've told you this before, I'm gonna tell you again because there might be somebody that missed it. Every time we go to a major city or we go on vacation or we go anywhere where there might be someone who asks for something, she makes sure we have something to give them. And what that normally means is she walks around with a wad of dollar bills in her pocket. (laughs) And I, if it were up to me, I'd be like, dude, they're a bunch of con artists. All right? They got more money in their pocket than we do. You're giving them my last two dollars. That's my hot dog later. But she takes seriously the passage that says, give to anyone who asks. What she understands, and she's helping me understand, is that love is the primary responsibility. It's not my responsibility to determine whether that person is taking advantage of me or not. A dollar is not going to make or break my life. Fifty dollars is not going to make or break my life. What's more important is that those people, when we come in contact with them, they experience love, unconditional love. I shared this with my group on Wednesday night. The importance of the cracks in this world that we live in the cracks that are around us. And I'm not talking about the cracks that are on the floor. I'm talking about the broken people. I'm talking about the cracks in people's lives, the hurts that people are experiencing. I'm talking about the struggles, the cracks that make people in, uh, be in distress and, and, and break hearts. And what, what I shared with them on Wednesday, uh, this gentleman we saw last week in Hal Perkins, he shared what our responsibility is is to go around and when we see cracks fill those cracks with the love of Jesus you see our job our responsibility is to fill the cracks in our lives Because let me tell you something, if you have genuinely, truly received Jesus Christ into your life, his love has filled the cracks in your life. You see, this morning, if you are struggling with the resistance of others, seek Jesus for courage and strength. He will provide everything you need to face what you face if you trust him. If you are wrestling with how 
to deal with the brokenness of those in your life and that which is around you. Let the love of Jesus work through you to fill the cracks. Don't let those around you who say you shouldn't heal on the Sabbath hinder you from healing. Don't let those around you try to convince you that what the Lord is speaking to you isn't real. Don't be hindered by the struggles of this world that pull you in so many different directions because there is a day when Christ will return and the only thing that will matter is your relationship with him. Jesus is the only way of forgiveness. He is the only way to reconciliation and he is the only way to salvation. Let him take first place and the rest will take care of itself. Amen? Let's all stand. This morning there's communion set up here. If you would like to take communion, the altars are always open. If God is speaking to you right now and you need to spend some time with him, come down, spend some time with him. And if you'd like somebody to come and pray with you, just lift that hand up when you get up here and somebody will be there with you immediately. But over these next few moments as we wrap this service up, let Jesus speak to you and respond. Amen? Heavenly Father, this morning I ask that you would just give us guidance and direction. Lord, I ask that you would just speak to us right now. Lord, Lord, as we see in Jesus' ministry here, as we see in the scripture, the opposition that he is constantly facing for doing your work, Lord, I know that there are those in this room right now who are striving to be obedient to you, who are striving to do what you have called us to do, and there is an enemy in our lives that is constantly trying to keep us from doing what you called us to do. Lord, I pray right now that we would just surrender it to you and trust in you. Let you, to take, let you take first place and see where you take us. I pray this in your most precious name. Amen.